0: Welcome to This Week in California Education, produced by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg, Executive Director of EdSource. And I'm John Fensterwald, Editor at Large of EdSource. Welcome, John. Thank you, Lewis. Well, John, this week we are going to focus on efforts mainly at the California State University System, but also what's going on at elsewhere in California's public universities to try to increase graduation rates, and in fact, in some surprising ways. There have been some developments this week, which we'll be talking about. But before we get to that, John, you talked with Michael Fine, who is the new president, CEO? CEO, yes. Of the fiscal crisis and management assistant team, a mouthful, but you'll tell us what that's about. And you talked with Michael about some of the clouds on the fiscal horizon for school districts around the state. Right. Let's just simplify by calling it thick mat, okay. which is what most u- people call. We try not to use acronyms, but in this
1: case, this is justified. (laughs) (laughs) So Michael is the new CEO, and he takes over from Joel Montero, who was there for a long time, and he takes over at a kind of a difficult time because the state's revenues from all projections are declining. So he's facing a period of declining revenue and continued expenses. Just just to clarify,
0: are they actually declining, or they're not going up at as high a rate as before?
1: Exactly, yes. Coming in at a slower rate. Exactly. The expenses, though, are continuing, such as uh, employee pension costs that districts face and also rising costs of special education in most districts. But yes, you're right. We are projected to get increases in revenue, but not to the extent that we've had under the first years of the local control funding formula.
0: So FICMAT, which is the organization that Michael Fine heads, they are called in to look at school districts that are having financial difficulties, And what did he have to say about the general outlook? So the primary
1: responsibility for monitoring finances are the county offices of education. And so every year they do require districts to do sort of self-certification, let us know, how are you doing? And then FICMAT is brought in if, in fact, we certify that those districts are not able to balance their books at any time in the next year, and then they look out two or three years and give projections too. So what he's saying is that, number one, under the local control funding formula, it's more complicated than in the past to make these assessments because... In the old system, they're called the revenue limit system, every district basically got the same increase.
0: This is the system before Jerry Brown pushed through, of course, with the legislature, these reforms to give schools extra money based on high-need students. The That's called right. Supplemental grants and concentration grants. That's but exactly right. But before that, we had this revenue limit system with outdated formulas and you, yeah.
1: It was much more uniform. Now, every district has its own, basically, per student funding based on, as you said, the amount of money they're getting for English learners and low-income students and foster kids. And so, it's really harder then to sort of project what kind of situation they're in. And it does vary from district to district because they're districts that have declining enrollment. And when you have declining enrollment, you have less revenue than you do if you're growing. And so, what he's saying is it really is a time for districts to be really careful about the kinds of commitments they're making, particularly long-term commitments, whether it's in staffing or whether it's in salary increases, because we just don't know in the horizon what's going to happen. So I met Michael at a budget conference in San Jose. We sat down and talked, and he explained the situation quite well. So let's listen to what he had to say.
2: We are at the tail end of a fairly dramatic expansion period. And so what's really going on out there is that we're in transition from working from those fairly significant expansions to a slowing of revenue, year-over-year revenue growth, while at the same time costs are not necessarily slowing. And so each district responds to that differently based on their own circumstance. In the new LCFF funding formula, we no longer have an average district, if you will, from a funding perspective. Each are unique based on their demographics. With respect to supplemental and concentration, everybody has the same base. Are they growing in enrollment, which is very few districts? Are they declining in enrollment? And what is the rate of decline or the rate of growth in either case? Creates very different responses to this transition from a district by district. And in some cases, they may be neighbors. We're not talking about one extreme or the other across the state. We're talking about it could be a neighbor in, in the same community one that's very stable and doing well and one that's not. John, did
0: Michael Fine from FICMAT have anything else to say that you wanted to share with us? Yeah, there was
1: one interesting thing that stuck out to me. He said about one in five, 20% of the districts are having what they call structural deficits. They never quite dealt with the problems they had at the recession. And then we came into this new system. They got lots of money, one of which is they may be uh, districts with declining enrollment, and yet they kept the same numbers of staff. Which is now harder to support, and the paradox, of course, is that in California we have perhaps the fewest adults per students than most states. So we're talking about cutting
0: back. Few, staff. Fewest adults? You mean in in schools or teachers? Right, or teachers,
1: per- librarians, counselors, and uh, so it's hard to think of them as sort of we're overstaffed. But that's one of the implications that districts will have to deal with, nonetheless, and, unless we increase our revenues.
0: Okay, well, thanks for bringing us that interview with Michael Fine. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be coming back talking about college dorms.
1: We're here with Larry Gordon, EdSource's higher education reporter. And, Larry, this week you had an interesting story about a sort of building boomlet in the CSU and its relationship to higher graduation rates. Larry, could you explain this connection?
3: Yeah, thanks, Sean. Um, CSU traditionally is a commuter school, and among the 23 campuses, there are a few that have upwards of 40% who live on campus, but most of them really have only about 5 or 10% who live on campus. And the CSU system is really, really trying to raise its graduation rates by doing such things as bolstering advising, trying to add courses, trying to get students on computerized programs that track their majors. But among other things, they decided to really embrace some national studies that show that students who live on campus, at least their freshman or sophomore year, bond with the school, feel part of it, get more group studying in, and often are on-campus in these uh, study groups that are formally created in the dorms. So it shows that those students who at least live for a year in the dorms have better retention, come back as sophomores and juniors, have better graduation rates, and are just more bonded with their education. So that's one of the reasons that certain campuses are building more. The other reason also is really has to do with high rents in some cities in California, particularly San Francisco and San Jose and Oakland. And there, San Francisco has a crazy rental market, which is causing students from San Francisco State to be locked out living anywhere near the campus.
0: Let me ask you, Larry, I think we all know San Francisco has a crazy housing market, but how much of a problem is this in other parts of the state?
3: It's uneven. Certain parts of the states in San Diego, San Jose, high price areas where students are competing with Silicon Valley people and high tech people and just regular families, um, it's really bad. In other places, it's not. Other places, there is plenty of, of housing. Some of it has gotten expensive. It's pushing some students to think twice, to equal out will be better to live in the dorm. But it's not evenly dispersed around the state. So some places they can easily get it, other places it's a nightmare to get it.
1: How many rooms are we talking about? What kind of building boom is it and and how will this be paid for?
3: Within the realm of CSU, it's not gigantic, but overall over the next few years, including the last few years, it's probably gonna be an addition total of about eight thousand extra beds which would bring the overall capacity to about just 15% of the students would be able to have beds. That's on even the more residential campuses like Sonoma and Chico. About half of the students would be able to be offered beds. Most of the expenses are coming through CSU revenue bonds, and they're going to be paid back through the revenues that the students pay for the rent. It's not coming through tax dollars and not coming through tuition. However, there's also another model which deals with private developers. Long Beach and San Francisco are entering into private agreements in which developers basically build it and take a share of the revenue.
0: Larry, I have to say, it seems kind of shocking that even after this boom, there's only 15% of students could be housed in CSU campuses uh, or on campus, especially given what you say, that this actually could help contribute to... Improved graduation rates.
3: That did surprise me too. I thought it was going to be higher. But then when you really think about the difference between the CSU and the UC, the University of California, University of California traditionally had taken kids who were going to live on campus and students who were coming across the state often, kids from San Diego attending Berkeley, students from Chico coming down to UCLA. The CSU's mission had often been to serve local students. And that meant students who lived at home often, students who transferred from community college, and also a significant portion of older students, people who would never live in a dorms, people who have their own kids or people who are coming back at 32 years old to start. So, so the demographic of the traditional students moving in with mom and dad with boxes from Bed Bath and beyond does apply to a, a slice of CSU students, but not the majority
0: But you've also now pointed out this connection to actually improve graduation rates for students who live on campus. I know we've been looking at all kinds of other strategies to improve graduation rates. And um, this seems like a very expensive
3: strategy to have to actually build new dorm rooms. It is. And they acknowledge that. You know, it's much cheaper to double the amount of college guidance counselors or offer more classes or to be more proactive in forcing students to follow a line of a a major. So that's partly why it's not going to be 70% of the students being offered dorms. And it will be paid for, not out of tuition. They keep stressing that this does not affect monies that might go to anything else, to instruction, to healthcare. It's separately bonded or separately dealt with in an agreement with the private developers, and the money that the students pay in rent pay back the bonds. That's the deal. But of course, you know, if something happens and there's low occupancy in a particular building, they could be in trouble. But that doesn't seem to be likely. They seem to be doing a lot of market studies that show they can fill up this new dorm.
1: That was Larry Gordon, EdSource's higher education reporter. So Lewis, speaking of increased graduation rates, one of the issues we've been covering is the struggle to determine how much remediation and math that students need to take once they get into CSU. And there were some developments this week. I wonder if you can tell us what they were.
0: Well, some very interesting developments. But just to set the stage, one of the big stumbling blocks for students at actually all levels of the system, particularly community colleges, but also at CSU, Cal State universities, and also at UC, University of California, to a certain extent, is that often students who have to take remedial courses, this is kind of counterintuitive, are actually less likely to graduate, because once you're on this remedial track it turns out it's very hard to get off that track. And often, students get discouraged. Often, there's like several courses, a sequence of remedial courses that you have to take. And for the students, really, to stick to these remedial courses without getting college credit, in the meantime, discourages a lot of students. So the various systems have been trying to figure out a way to get students through this remedial maze. In a way that, one, makes sure they get the skills, but also doesn't push them out of the system altogether. And reflects, in fact, the degree of math that they will need. So talking about math, math has been one of the biggest stumbling blocks, actually. And... um one of the things that students have to have mastered by the time they get to cal state campuses that one thing you have to have taken in high school is intermediate algebra often called algebra two now under common core math it could be the math three course You have to have that. That's one of the A to G requirements that they need to get into CSU. But what the CSU has discovered is often when students get there, they actually haven't really mastered the material, even though they've passed it in high school. Those students take a placement test and then often end up in a remedial class before they can take the regular math classes that they need to graduate. There's a certain set of courses called general education courses that students need to graduate. And this intermediate algebra is just a huge stumbling block. And there's been a lot of discussion over the years that many students, if you're not going on in in some kind of career path that really needs math or needs algebra, why do you need to master intermediate algebra when you really even have have taken it in high school and actually passed an intermediate algebra course. So what CSU announced this week seems very significant that students will no longer need intermediate algebra as a prerequisite to enter certain math courses like statistics, could be personal finance, Could be some other quantitative reasoning course that doesn't really need algebra so that you could go into those courses and then meet your math requirements that way. So
1: you still need to take algebra two in high school, right, to go to CSU. Absolutely. You're saying you don't need to demonstrate proficiency in the way that they had
0: required it? Yes. And let's be clear. This is not, if you are going to be a math major or an engineering major or biology major, you are going to still have to know intermediate algebra. You're going to have to demonstrate that proficiency. John Fensterwald, history major, you're okay. (laughs) Yes. If you decide to go back to college, you will be spared uh, intermediate algebra. But,
1: Lewis, weren't there other developments on this front, some announcements from the chancellor's office?
0: That's right, John, the chancellor of the Cal State system, Timothy White, issued an executive order. This had actually been somewhat anticipated. This executive order took on a problem with these proficiency tests that a lot of students have to take to decide whether they should be in remedial or developmental classes, which would be how people prefer to describe them. And there's been some concern that these proficiency tests actually pushed students unnecessarily into remedial classes when they may have enough knowledge. And so henceforth, CSU will not be using these proficiency tests as a way to screen students, but they will be using multiple measures. That might be high school grades. It might be their SAT or ACT scores or scores on the Smarter Balanced assessments. Those are the ones aligned with the common core. Another thing that he's proposing is really implementing a portfolio of strategies to get students into college-bearing credit courses without going into the remedial track. But this means courses they call co-requisite courses where students get a lot of additional help while they are taking the college level course, or supplementary supports, or what they call stretch courses, which give students a longer period of time to take the sequence of courses, tied in perhaps with some remedial courses. Interesting uh, Let me take this. A tied in, tied in with some remedial supports interesting development well i think one of the questions is how significant is this and we talked with pam birdman who used to be at the hewlett foundation and has done a lot of the path-breaking work in the state around this whole math maze that students have to find their way through and uh, i asked pam how significant she thought these developments are
4: Well, it says to me that CSU is serious about implementing policies that promote student success. They want to make sure their policies aren't inadvertently serving as barriers to success unless it's necessary, unless the student really needs additional remedial coursework, for example. So that is positive. What I would look for is to see how they actually go about implementing these changes and how they monitor the effectiveness of the changes. Multiple measures, for example, there are many, many ways of implementing it. And a lot of research has been done in the community college sector on multiple measures. There's been a lot of experimentation there. And I would hope CSU would do the same in terms of collecting data, looking at different algorithms that might be used and making sure that whatever they're implementing is the most fair and effective system they can do.
0: That was Pam Birdman. John, as you are well aware, California has three systems of higher education, also K-12. All of these are key to making these reforms work. So I asked Pam, to what extent can CSU make these changes on its own, without the other systems coming on board.
4: For these changes to be most effective, they ought to be aligned with what's happening in community colleges as well as in CSU. And in fact, all three systems have been implementing reforms in their approach to math readiness. So actually, these changes that CSU is making are aligned with the direction that community colleges and CSU is moving in. And in fact... This change should remove some barriers that community college transfer students might otherwise face in transferring from community college to CSU.
0: That was Pam Birdman, and we're going to be staying in close touch with Pam as this unfolds. I have to say that these announcements from CSU came out in kind of fits and starts. A lot of unclarity at the moment exactly how this will be enforced. So we are looking for more clarity. And I think a lot of people, particularly high school seniors, exactly <laughs> counselors, and others will be looking for clarity and on when
1: that. When we get clarity, we will be reporting it.
0: Well, great. That just about wraps it up for this week in California education. If you'd like to hear more about these and other stories, please go to our website. Please be sure to check out the announcement of our upcoming symposium in October 5th on education for all serving California's vulnerable children.
1: And if you like what you've heard, please give us a review on iTunes or whatever service you download.
0: Thanks for listening. I'm Lewis Friedberg here with John Fensterwald. Our producer is Sarah Tan. See you next week.